Father, we understand your word says give thanks in all circumstances. And the circumstances we find ourselves in here today, living in a country that has been blessed by you, such prosperity, we live higher than most of the people in the world. We have more wealth, just trillions of dollars worth in this country. And we know it's because you have blessed us. Father, we don't know what our future might hold, what's entailed, if the stock market's going to continue to drop, or if it's going to turn around, if righteous leaders rise to the top, or if they are deposed. We have no idea, Lord, but one thing we do understand, and it is from you, that your word is true, it is just, it is fair, it is righteous. And with that, Lord, help us to bring that understanding from Scripture to our hearts that we might walk accordingly, according to the gospel that we have been called to. We pray that you'd bless our understanding, fill us full of wisdom, and do this by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So far, as we have gone through the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, I, I love how he just organizes it. And I'll probably keep on doing this till the end of the book. But we started out with the biography or the family. Where he came from goes all the way back to Abraham, all the way up to Jesus Christ. And, you know, you have David in there, and it's all good. And so you have this biography, the family that is listed. And it tells us, well, what did the family do and how the family went down to Egypt and then came back up and decided not to settle in Bethlehem, but to go on towards Nazareth because scripture said Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So you have that. This is what his family did. Then you had the forerunner, which was John the Baptist in Matthew chapter three. So you had the family, you had the forerunner, it describes to us who John the Baptist is, and as we get into the scriptures here, Lord willing, we're going to get to who Jesus thought that he was. <laughs> Excuse me. And then there's the formula for the kingdom citizens to follow, and that would be the Beatitudes, chapters 5 through 7. You go through that, and you go, okay, this is following a progression here. I'm understanding where I'm going at this point and what lies ahead. I would have some kind of understanding with that because then the foundation of Jesus' words are established through the miracles, the ten miracles that we had there. So you see him going all the way back through the genealogy, all the way up to the ministry of Jesus Christ, going and ministering to all the towns in the area of Galilee. And then from that, when he called those who were sent or separated, they were sent, they were sustained by God, suffering, is going to be something that's inevitable and you will be under the suspicion of any authority that is out there. We're not to shrink back or to sacrifice daily everything to follow Christ. And that is the fruit of a true disciple. They will look at that and go, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. Do you see how this builds? It starts with the genealogy, comes to Jesus Christ, what he's teaching, calls those who are supposed to be out there, backs it up by miracles, what they're supposed to be doing, and says, this is going to be the fruit. And now, this is the linchpin in Matthew. We get to the foes of Christ and the kingdom of God. This is where the ministry crescendos, and all of a sudden, it starts dropping off. It starts declining all the way to the point where he is completely abandoned 
even by the apostles. It seems like he is so popular, feeding the 3,000 and the 5,000, and it's many more than that, including women and children. Very popular individual. He was a man who was loved. He was outgoing. He was very articulate with the people. They loved listening to him. They loved being fed by him. Very, like I said, very popular. Controversy a little bit, but people just loved him. And at this point, as he's going through his ministry, and this is the right at the midpoint of the ministry. He's been doing this for half of the three or three and a half years that he's, he's going out and doing the ministry. This is right in the middle. So right up to that center point, he's doing great. And all of a sudden, it starts to drop off. And it starts to drop off because of different things, these foes that come along. And the first foe, and it's a potential foe, it's not an absolute foe, is doubt. You know, when we walk with Christ, there are times that we come to these crossroads and we say, is this really the right way? Is this really the direction I'm supposed to be taking for all of eternity? And we start to question, is this correct? Is this not correct? Have I been duped? Have I just bought this hook, line, and sinker like a fish seeing something shiny and glimmering and kind of moving a little bit in the water and I just went for that and I've been completely deceived? Or is it the truth and is it being confirmed? And is there a way to confirm what you might doubt that could be true? And is there a way to refute that which is false and is meant to deceive. And so we look at John here, specifically John the Baptist, in verse 1 of chapter 11. It reads here, After Jesus had finished instructing the twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison that Christ, what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And so he doesn't say, yes, I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I have arrived. But he has this doubt. Of all people, why would John the Baptist have this doubt? He was Jesus' cousin. They probably grew up together playing. And when Jesus got baptized, what happened? The Trinity was there. The Son was there. The Holy Spirit came down, lighted on him like a dove. And the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And yet he has this doubt. So these foes of Christ and the kingdom of God, it begins with this doubt, then it can turn into disdain, disbelief, and dissatisfaction. That's what's listed in chapters 11 and 12. And it's building on this outline that Matthew has for us, going all the way through right up to where the ministry is prospering, and all of a sudden it starts to drop. And this is the first indication that people are beginning to question, maybe disbelieving and saying, I'm not quite so sure about this. Now, what Jesus told him to go back and say was quoted from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. 
And I'm going to read that to you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now, this was being fulfilled, and it's yet to be fulfilled. The first part of it, the healings that are taking place, that describes Jesus' ministry. But we know also in the millennial kingdom, water is going to flow from the throne of God, go all the way down to the Jordan and the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is going to be filled up. And so it says streams in the desert will gush forth. That is going to be a fulfillment of the prophecy. A lot of times you'll have these prophecies that are split in two. You only see part of it. You don't see all of it fulfilled. And Jesus refers to this. So he's making provision for this prisoner, John, giving him exactly what he needs to understand Jesus is the one. Now, again, he doesn't say, yeah, I'm it. I'm the one to come. That wouldn't be very humble. He just tells him, look what is happening. Look what is taking place. Now, Jesus' habit was to go and preach the kingdom of God after he found out that John the Baptist was in prison. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus didn't go to the prison and say, you know, how can I help you, John? He has a specific task. He was sent to go let people know to preach that they needed to repent and they needed to hear the good news. Even though John was a beloved friend, a cousin, a brother, so to speak, he had this other task that he had to follow through with. And some might say, well, why didn't you go you know, take care of his needs? Well, John had his disciples, and his disciples would meet with him. And we know from the first part of this chapter that the disciples of John went and asked Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another? So Jesus was focused on what the Father wanted him to do. That's supposed to be our task as well. We're supposed to know exactly what God wants us to do. And you might say, well, I'm doing it. Like going to church, reading my Bible, going to Bible study. All those things are certainly requirements of a disciple that we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Well, what else? Well, what's your ministry? What, what particular ministry do you have? And I, I've covered this before. God calls us to do specific things, and we're not to be deterred from that even if some calamity comes along with somebody close that we know. We may take the time to minister. He did take the time to tell the disciples, go back and tell John, this is what you see. He didn't completely ignore him, but he stayed focused on what he was supposed to do. Now, for John, things were not moving forward the way that he thought. I'm sure John was thinking, okay, this is it. The Messiah is here. He's going to set up his kingdom. It's all going to be good. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in prison. He goes, this wasn't in the plan. What's going on with this? And he got sidetracked. And we do the same thing. I'm doing this for the Lord. And all of a sudden, I get sidetracked. There's a recent example of this that most all of you know. Dustin, the only reason he went up to Reno was so that he might be close to his parents. And before the house is sold and before he buys another one, both his parents pass away. He finds out, what now? This wasn't in the plan. This plan is supposed to be different from my perspective. And God says, don't worry about it. I got this. 
I got this. And so he's following through. This is God's way of getting him up there. So we, we have these instances where it's just not going the way that we thought it should go. I can remember growing up and <clears throat> with my mother and her two sisters. And we would get together and we would just have fun times with all the grandkids. If I started counting, there was like 12. We'd all get together and we're all about the same age. And we're out. You guys remember that one sprinkler that would do this? Go like that. And it'd go back and forth, right? <clears throat> and we'd all line up. You know, I was like five. I'd get up there and run through the sprinkler. And you hop over the sprinkler and you run through. And everybody takes their turn. And um, my brothers and I, I was first. No, I was first. And you get them back in line. And, and then you, you meet at Christmas and the holidays, you know, that, that come around and birthdays and special events. I remember all of that and how I love that, how I love getting together and I, I can remember lining up at my Aunt Norma's sink over here on Washington and each one of the, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty too. And we'd get in line, we'd get cups of water, you know, just like a little train going on with all these kids. And I thought, this will be great when everybody grows up, gets married, has kids, we'll still do this. And I thought this, you know, in, into my teens. And it didn't quite work out that way. Some got married, some didn't, some got divorced, the family kind of split. You know, it's so sad. It's so sad to see it didn't work out the way that I thought it would work out. And all of us have something like that where it just didn't pan out the way that we thought. And so here's John the Baptist. He has these doubts. He's thinking, well, maybe the Messiah will usher in the kingdom, but he has this roadblock, he has this delay, he has this obstacle, and hence the reason for the doubts. Now, he's not the only one who doubted. Can you remember from the book of Judges, somebody who put out a sheepskin because he doubted? That would be Gideon. Gideon put that out. God, you know, I... I'm kind of sure, you know, but I just really want, I just kind of doubt what's going on. Samuel, well, well, I pointed salt, just like it told me, and it's not working out that way, and what's going on here? There's another king. You, you want somebody else? You want me to go find out? Oh, surely this one, the son of Jesse, is going to be the one, and it wasn't. It had to go all the way through. This little runt, the redhead who's out there in the shepherd's field, you want him? You know, just all kinds of doubts and questions. What about Moses? Lord, send somebody else. I, I can't do that. All these great men of God and women in the scriptures, they had some doubts. When we look at the Christmas story, Mary, she, praise the Lord, oh my soul. You know, she was just lifted. No doubts whatsoever. I'm a young teenage girl and I'm pregnant Yes, you know, and you're going, wow, that's different. Joseph, that wasn't Joseph's plan, I can tell you that. What do you mean you're pregnant? Uh Uh-huh, by the Holy Spirit, Uh uh-huh, okay. Wanted to put her away, and he didn't because God spoke to him in a dream. Okay, I can get behind this, all right, but I'm sure he had doubts. If that happened today, if they still got married... Big trouble in little city here. And so these doubts will arise. If you have doubts, 
It's okay to have the doubts, but it can turn into a foe. So much so that you abandon your faith. And I know somebody who did this. This person was having doubts. I'll keep them unnamed. They were having doubts. And just as Jesus answered John, Jesus answered this person. And I got to witness it. And I was just dumbfounded. I thought to myself, what more do you need? Huh? You, you have these doubts. Because people, when they hear things in Scripture that don't seem quite right, they may start to doubt. Then they listen to things on YouTube and they go off the rails on some of this bad doctrine. And you no, no. Stick with what you know. Don't change the known for the unknown. Don't listen to stuff that just is controversial and will cause arguments. Stick with what you know to be true. For instance, the things that we know to be true. There is a God. Many people would say, there is no God. Things that we know to be true. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We know that to be true because there is ample evidence to prove it. We have at least four Gospels that talk about it, not to mention the writings of the Apostle Paul. There's ample evidence to let us know for sure, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Another thing that is for sure is one day we will all pass away. For sure it is going to happen unless you go in the rapture, then it doesn't matter, right? It's, (laughs) we get to go, and that would be great if that happens. But unless that happens, all of us at some point will pass away. So these are the things that are known Taxes, are they for sure? You betcha. They'll come after you no matter what country you're in, no matter whose authority you are under, somebody is going to come along and want to cut, no matter who it is. And so these things are sure. But those things which are unsure, we just cast them aside and say, look, it's not going to violate that which is sure, and I may not get all the information. How big is God's information. How big is God's ability to teach? It is infinite. He is going to teach us forever. Well, how long is that? For eternity. Well, how long is that? It'll never end. Well, how long is that? We can't see the end. You know, I mean, it just, it goes on. That's how much knowledge Jesus has. And he's going to instruct us this whole time that we're with him in heaven. And so the things that are known stick with the things that are unknown. The things are stick with the things that are known and the things that are unknown just place them to the side and I will say I'll get the information. Now I haven't run across I can't think of any off the top of my head. But this one person that I was referring to I was on a backpacking trip. We took the youth with us. And we would do this about every other year we'd go from Tuolumne Meadows, all the way to Mammoth Mountain, not the ski resort, but there's another mountain up there called Mammoth Mountain. And then there'd be Amelia Earhart. I'd take them to the top of Amelia Earhart. It'd be over 10,000 feet. We'd all hike up there, and it would be about a five, six-day hike. We'd cover 45 to 50 miles. We're out there in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it literally is nowhere. And so as we're walking, one of the adults that was with us was behind me, and she had these doubts. 
and she'd tell me about her doubts. And I would explain to her that, you know, we have ample evidence that Jesus is who he said he was, God is who he declares himself to be in Scripture, and that's all you need. So she thought she would throw out a little fleece. When you go up to the mountains, one of the things you want to see is a bear. And so we, we would, sometimes we'd pull up into camp, and we'd go at night, we'd take a flashlight, and we'd start walking the perimeter road. Here, bear, 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 bear. You know, we'd be looking for the bears out there, and we would run across them. You know, we, we would see California black bear that would be there, and, and it would be threatening and everything else, but there's a lot of us, so it was all good. And, and so we're going on this hike, we're probably into day... I think it's day four, maybe day five. We're coming from Miss Lake down to Little Yosemite. And it's a long trek. And as we're going through here, she puts out this fleece. She says, God, if you're real, I want to see a bear. Because she hadn't seen one. Not more, and I'm going to try to recall how long it was. I'm going to say not more than ten minutes. We're walking along. I have my pack here. I'm walking like this. She's behind me. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, jetting down this hill comes this bear. Right across the path, right in front of us. And keeps on running. I turn back to her. And she goes, what? And I said, I said, I'm just like speechless. You know, you don't see that. You, you don't see. I mean, it, there was one other time I saw a bear with two cubs and, you know, okay, we're backing away here. But this time, this thing came like a rocket and it was forceful right in front of us, not even from me to the chairs there. And I'm going, whoa, look at that thing go. And it just took off. And she prayed that. And I said, what more do you need? And she so well, and she's still in her doubt. She turned, and she's no longer walking with the Lord. The Lord provided her exactly what she needed and exactly what she requested. And even after that, you do have the evidence, she still traded the unknown for the known and walked away. John here is getting more of the known to help him with his doubt. Now, sometimes this doubt, like I said, it can take us away when it shouldn't take us away. But I like this quote by Paul Tillich. He was a Lutheran theologian. It says, Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. Several people will say that doubt is the opposite of faith. And it's really not. Without the doubt, your faith does not really become established. Because when you doubt something, if you go through the exercise of establishing and wiping away what you doubt or confirming that the doubt is true, unless you actually go through that process, you will not be strong at all. You'll always be going, I don't know if it's true or not. And what does James say about that? Double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And so we need to come to a conclusion and know what we believe. I, I think I've expressed to you before, when I was in seminary, they said, the people expect you to know what you believe. 
And you must be open to change if you find out it's not correct according to Scripture. But they better know what you believe, and you better be able to stand on it and quote the chapter and verse and, and be able to explain doctrine clearly what Jesus Christ taught and what the entire Old Testament is about and what the book of Revelation, everything all the way through. People want to know what you believe. And so we need to become established. When doubts arise, attack the doubt. Is it true? Is it not true? Is there something I don't know there? If there's something that I don't know, well, hold us on a second. I need to get the knowledge. And though it costs you everything, we're to get understanding. We're to get knowledge. We're to get wisdom. Book of Proverbs says that. Though it costs us everything. Now, does that sound like somebody who is lackadaisical? Though it costs you everything. What, it, what does that envision in your mind? Though it costs you everything. You're walking around in rags. You're walking around with no possessions whatsoever because you're looking for what the truth is. That is sold out. If we don't pursue it in that fashion, we will always come at short. We all we will always be shy in our understanding. We will not be established in the faith. We will not be able to defend what we believe. And God calls us to do all of those things. Now, for John the Baptist, I just read you what it said <coughs> Excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. But what comes before that? John would have known this. It says in verse 1, The desert and the parched land, in verse 35 of Isaiah, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. That comes right before what Jesus told him, the blind will see, the lame will walk. In other words, he's encouraging him. And that's what we're supposed to do, the person who doubts, encourage him. We're not supposed to say, oh, it was stupid, oh, you know nothing, nothing. Sorry, a little Spanish lingo there. We're not supposed to go down and condemn somebody for what they don't know. They're, they're having doubts, and those doubts are legitimate, which leads to the strengthening of the faith, of the faith, the most holy faith, and also the faith of the individual. Those things become strong, and you can stand when there's some type of tragedy that comes along, when there's some type of trial, and all of us will have some type of tragedy and some type of trial that we're going to have to deal with. So this idea that John was in a place of doubt, it was used to strengthen him because Jesus came back and gave him the word that he needed, the encouragement. Oh, Jesus is fulfilling scripture. John knew the scripture, therefore he was encouraged because of that. If we know the scripture, we will be encouraged because of that. If we don't, we are drifting. Now, the, the modern day, if you talk to the modern day kids out there, what is drifting? It's taking that little Japanese car and going around that corner and drifting. That's what. No, drifting is you're walking away from the faith. You're, you're going where you ought not to go. You're not remaining close to the Lord. So encouragement comes from the scriptures. Remember, life will be filled with struggles just like it was for the disciples. We will suffer physically, spiritually, and emotionally. All of those things will come, 
But when it comes to doubt, don't let it come and just take over your whole life. There are solid answers for the things that we need. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, Scripture tells us. Now, going on, Jesus describes who John the Baptist is. And this is true greatness, is what we see in John. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind. Remember, he was out there at the Jordan. He was baptizing people. He was telling the Pharisees to repent. He called them a brood of vipers, you know, that type of thing. He told Herod that it was unlawful for him to have Philip, Herod's wife, and he took her for his own. And he spoke against that. Now, that is somebody who is a... He was actually a priest. He comes from the priestly line. He was speaking up against the authority of the government, that this is not lawful for you to have that wife, that woman as your own. She is Philip's wife. She's not your wife. Now, what would happen today if you spoke up and you said something about a mayor, a governor, a senator, a congressman, uh, the president, the vice president, and you said, this is wrong. You ought not to have this, and you have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you said something like that, they're going, nutcase. You know, that's what the world is going to say. But if you said, no, this is absolutely wrong. This is not right. You have erred. You have fallen into sin. You need to change this. Have there ever been presidents in the past that have fallen into sin? Maybe a couple. You know, and, and does the world come out or the media come out and say, oh, this is wrong. The person needs to repent of this. There needs to be a national day of mourning. And, you know, when your leaders are falling into that unrepentantly, then it's an issue. You know, it's something that has to be dealt with. And we are allowed from Scripture. So many people say, don't talk about religion or politics. Never mix the two. You know, it's like, oh, ah, Dracula, ah, you know, it just makes them break out in hives. They can't stand it. I was watching a a little interview by Piers Morgan and Rick Warren on the the gay thing. And uh, Piers Morgan was saying, well, you know, a lot of the stuff in the Bible, it just doesn't apply today. Really? Well, which, which thing would that be exactly is what I would have said. But Rick, you know, he was nice. The Piers Morgan. But this idea that we cannot stand up and say something, well, because of that, where did it land him? Because he stood up and said, you have the wrong woman. He got landed into prison. His Herod's wife wanted to kill him, but she was unable to. Until later, of course, and you know the story of that. So here is John. Jesus, again, began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Malachi chapter 3. That's a prophecy from Malachi chapter 3. I tell you the truth. (coughs) Excuse me. Among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is just so packed right here. Here's a man in camel's hair, 
He has a leather belt. He never cut his hair. He's probably a little smelly. He's out there in the wilderness. He eats bugs dipped in honey. Probably had some of it dripping down his beard. Yelling at the leaders, you brutal vipers! And people are coming to him, they're thinking he's a prophet. If somebody was doing that today, they would say, he's a crazy man, nutcase, is what they would say. But he was out there and the Pharisees would show up and this is who he was. And Jesus goes, the greatest man ever born. And you go, whoa. And what do we look at? We look at the outside. Who's the greatest man ever born? Or the greatest woman? You know, the greatest woman is the most beautiful. The greatest man is the most handsome. You know, that they can look like Superman, something like that. That's the greatest who's out there. And Jesus says, nope, this guy. This guy is the greatest of every man who has ever existed up to this point. <laughs> what kind of statement is that? And it's because of several different things. One, was John the Baptist double-minded? Absolutely not. He knew what he believed, and he stuck to it. And he preached it to everybody who was out there. He did not compromise in his beliefs. The world is calling us as the Christian church to compromise. One of the things in the conversation Piers Morgan was having, he turns to Rick Warren, he says, you as a, a, a great Christian man, a really great Christian man, how can you not say that it is, it's correct for a, two men if they love each other to be married or two women if they be married? And he was going down that road, and he wanted Rick Warren, who said, by the way, Rick Warren, there's some things I have a problem with, some things are just fantastic, so I'm, I'm just going to set that and let it set there. But anyhow, he, he turned to him and he said, you know, basically the Lord doesn't change. This is the way it is. And we can choose to try to modify that. And it would be wrong for us to do that. But we have differing opinions. And that's basically what he said. But he wanted Rick Warren to kind of compromise. Can't you just be not hateful? Can't you just be accepting with what's going on? And of course the answer was no. He stood for righteousness. He did not tolerate wickedness. Hence, Herod having his brother Philip's wife. And he separated himself unto God. Now, there were three people that I can think of that took the vow of a Nazarite. First one, Samson. Guy was strong, stronger than an ox. He was just tremendously strong. I like to think he was probably four foot six and, and still just tremendously strong. That would have been the ultimate in hilarity, and that's how God works sometimes. Would have been fantastic. Then Samuel, prophet Samuel. He was under that. He was never to drink any wine, that type of thing. And here you have John the Baptist. All three of them, great. Uh, now, Samson, he had some issues, you know. There's no question about that. Was deceived by the woman. But, you know, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, ladies. <clears throat> but, you know, he, he definitely had some issues, but they were used by God. You know, it was the way that it worked out. And so... He was truly great because he was not double-minded. He stood for righteousness. He separated himself unto God. And also, he was humble like Moses was. 
His statement in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must become greater, I must become less. He did not seek greatness for himself. He only sought greatness for Jesus Christ. And so if we follow these things, that would make us truly great in the eyes of God as well. And that's why we, we take these scriptures and we examine them, we open them up and we see, well, so what made somebody great in the kingdom of God? And there's no greater love than this, and a man laid down his life for somebody else. It's that whole theme of doing things for others. Going on in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. There's kind of a double meaning in the structure of this in the original language. It's called the passive middle voice. It's, it's, there's violence from within going out, and there's also violence from without coming against the kingdom is what is meant to be said in the original language here. And both are true. Now, John was not a violent man, but certainly in the realm of the spiritual warfare, there's violence going on. And we have a part in that. How do we fight? The scripture says we do not fight with weapons of warfare. And we have the spiritual armor. You guys are all familiar with that, right? In Ephesians, it says we have a helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are girt about with the loins of truth. We have the shield of faith. And what's the last one? Sword of the Spirit. That's, again, the Word of God, you know, having it up there and being able to use it. <clears throat> what, if you, what if you had this sword? And by the way, the longer the sword, the greater the reach. And so if you fashion and be able to wield a long sword, you can do much damage in the spiritual realm using the word of God. You can slice and dice, chip and peel, whatever you want to do with that particular thing. You can. But say, yeah, I've been a Christian for a long time. And you go, right here. Right. My Swiss army knife, I have it. You know, and you, John 3.16, I'm ready to go with that. You know, you know and I, I mix some humor with that, but you guys understand, we're supposed to have an abundance of scripture. You know, it's ho, ho, ho time. What if you had a whole bag of them? And you walked around, and I, you want a scripture? I got one for you. And you pull it out, and here you go. And you're able to dispense it as the need arises. It's such a blessing to be able to do that. And we're never done. We're never finished sharpening that sword and learning how to use it in the proper context. And that's what the Lord wants us to do. And so we go out and we fight this spiritual battle. But there's also going to be the evil which comes against the church. And what he's saying is there's going to be a battle going on. And we have to be engaged. Do not be complacent. Do not just sit there and divest yourself of all of humanity. That, that's the habit of today with all the technology that is out there. The gamers who are out there, the phones, you know, that are clicking away. I saw a picture of what was going on in the White House. There was a Christmas party there. And I saw some of the pictures of the White House. And it was elegantly adorned and the trees and the garland around the rooms. I'm just going, Wow. Look at this. And then it showed some people that were in the pictures, you know, just like a side thought. And you tap open the screen and go, what are they doing? They're all there just on their phones, sitting down on their phones. Are you kidding me? Where are you? The White House? What? And who's there? Everybody. And you're on your phone. 
It's like we're missing it. And those people are separating themselves from what really is important. And so, you know, we have to temper that ourselves. He goes on to say, verse 13, for all the prophets and law prophesied until John, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I believe this is a split prophecy. I believe that John came to fulfill what would be the forerunner position of the Messiah when he arrived. I believe that the real Elijah is going to show up before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He's going to be one, I think, it's my opinion, he's going to be one of those two prophets that show up. Why? Well, he never died, number one. Number two, some of the miracles that take place, he was already part of that. And the spirit and power that was upon him is going to be on one of these two prophets that show up in the... uh, book of revelation during that time some people say the other one is probably moses or enoch and we don't know but there's going to be two prophets and there is a possibility that it's two new guys could be go figure god does things that we don't expect you know so that could very well happen but i believe this is a split prophecy if jesus came the first time and the world accepted him the forerunners there all prophecy is fulfilled it can happen he presented himself on the day of atonement that was there or excuse me, on the day <coughs> the day that was presented in Scripture for him to point up the Daniel's day that refers to uh, in the Old Testament. And so all of these things were meant as signs for John, and Jesus praised John for who he was and how he lived his life and everything that he endured. So, you know what? I'm going to hold it right there. We still have to get through the other sections here, the disdain, the disbelief, and also the dissatisfaction that was taking place in the denunciation. We're going to go through all of those in chapter 11 and chapter 12. But may John the Baptist be a tremendous example for us of what it is. If we have doubt, well, we can move on from that doubt if we just put the effort in. Jesus allowed him to do it by giving him not only the word, but the acts that followed, the blind see, the dead are raised, and the lame walk. May we use this to strengthen our own faith. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks for people like John the Baptist, who was alive 2,000 years ago. Such a long time, Lord, but he maintained his faith even to the point of death. Help us, and when we doubt, to turn to your word, to look at fulfilled prophecy, those things which your word ultimately declares that is right and true and just, and we can trust in it. We can exercise faith, Lord. One of the times we doubt, we pray that you would come alongside, that your Holy Spirit would comfort us, instruct us, and lead us into truth. In Jesus' name, amen.